All right, if I have not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Alan Pittman. I have the pleasure of being the, the lead pastor here, the senior pastor, as well as one of the elders. And if I have not had a chance to meet you, I'd love to have that chance. After the service, I'll be out in the atrium. You can swing by and say howdy to me. Um, if you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to go ahead and open that up. We'll be in Acts chapter 4. And um, we, uh, like I said, are walking through the book of Acts together as a church family. If you have missed a week of sermons, you can always catch up by going to the website. We kind of have them archived there for you. Two weeks ago, we started chapter 3 of the book of Acts. And as we started the book, uh, chapter 3, we found out that Peter and John, two of the apostles of Jesus, were on their way to the temple one day when they see a man who's been lame since birth, and he's over 40 years old, and, and they offer him not money when he was begging, but instead they offer him Jesus Christ. And, and Peter says, in the name of Jesus rise up and walk. And so we see that there's a miraculous healing at the name of Jesus in, in the life of this man. And then last week, we looked at the second half of chapter 3, where Peter stood up and began to preach to the crowd what happened, who did this miracle. It was not him. It was Jesus who did the miracle, and he proclaimed the gospel to those that gathered around them. Because there was a lot of commotion whenever this man was healed, and the people wanted to hear what took place. And so today, we're going to look at chapter 4. Chapter 4 of Acts actually continues the story or the account of what we find in chapter 3. It's after he's preached to the crowd, and now we're going to find out that Peter is going to preach yet another time, and yet it's going to be to an additional portion of a crowd. This is Peter's third sermon in the book of Acts already. We're in chapter 4, and we have three recorded sermons of Peter. And so what we're seeing here is that Peter and the other apostles are living out what Jesus told them to do back in Acts chapter 1-8, which says that they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So the question we're going to ask ourselves today in Acts chapter 4 is, what happens when the church begins to live out the mission that Jesus has given to us, and that is proclaiming the name of Jesus? What happens then? Turn with me to Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. The words will be on the screen. Also, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible in a chair near you. You can follow along with us in that as well. Here's what it says. Acts chapter 4, verse 1, and as they were speaking, this is Peter and John, as they were speaking to the people, to the crowd, it says the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. We'll talk about who these people are in a moment. These leaders of the Jewish temple says in verse 2, they got greatly annoyed because Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested the men. And they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. All of this began about three in the afternoon. It's the end of the day, so they put them in custody to hold them overnight. Verse 4, but many of those, the crowd that had heard the message of Peter, they heard the word, they believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem also Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired. And here's the question the religious leaders asked of Peter and John. By what power 
Or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. And here's what they said to one another. In verse 16, it says, What shall we do with these men? For that a noble sign has been performed through them, the miracle, it's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called Peter and John, and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man to whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Hopefully when you came in, you picked up a, a worship guide. And if so, there on the back of the worship guide is some sermon notes to follow along. If you have that, you can take notes. If you don't have that still, pay attention, maybe jot down notes somewhere else. Here's what we see. The first thing I want to point out is that in this text, we're reminded that proclamation of Jesus brings opposition. Proclamation of Jesus brings opposition. Now, we're in chapter 4, and Peter is now preaching his third sermon, and lots of things have happened, but this is the first time that it is recorded that the apostles are facing opposition when being Jesus' witnesses. Now, buckle up, because this is not going to be the last time. As we walk through the rest of Acts, chapter after chapter, incident after incident, we're going to find out that opposition comes from everywhere. And so as we see this example of how opposition came in the book of Acts, we need to understand the same thing will come our direction today as well. It may not look the same way, but opposition is inevitable because proclamation of Jesus brings opposition. 
So now we see that, that there's a reaction to what took place in chapter 3. In chapter 3, Peter had preached and a large crowd of people gathered. We'll see in a moment just how large. And there's a large crowd that's gathered there at the temple, around the temple area. And the rulers and the leaders of the Jewish faith do not like the fact that there's a large crowd there. And they also do not like the message that had been preached. So look at verses 1 and 2. It says that while they were still speaking, while they were still teaching, as they were proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is, some people show up. And you can see them listed here in verse 1. Who are these priests that show up? If you don't know much about how the system of, of the Jewish faith worked back then, they had thousands of priests. And so the priests would actually kind of rotate on and off. They would serve by division. And so the, 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 the records seem to indicate that most of the priests would come to Jerusalem two weeks a year, and, and while they were there, they would be serving in the temple. And so the priests that show up to talk to Peter and John are the priests that just happen to be on, on, on standby that week. They're serving there in the temple. It also says that the captain of the temple came up. And depending on your translation, it could say something else. It could say temple guard. It could also say even temple police. And the reality is that this captain of the temple was kind of in charge. He, he was kind of the priest in charge, but specifically in the area of, of policing or making sure everything stayed calm. He was the priest in charge of the temple police. Now, when you came in the door, you didn't see the church police here. Thankfully, we don't have the church police, but back there at the temple, they, they had the temple piece, uh, police to kind of keep the peace. And the reality is the biggest reason they wanted to keep the peace was to keep the peace so the Romans did not get all excited. The Romans did not want some upheaval of people in, in, in the areas that they were in charge of. And so the temple police made sure that no one would come in and claim to be the Messiah and try to kind of rally the troops, if you will. It also says the Sadducees in verse 1 were there. If you don't know much about um, the, 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 the Jewish system, you may not be aware of this name, although I bet you have heard of them before. The Sadducees were a sect of uh, Jewish um, leaders, if you will. And they were kind of the aristocracy. They, they had uh, a lot of money. They had a lot of influence, a lot of power. They were cooperative with the Romans, and they wanted to maintain their status. So whenever all this preaching and hubbub is going on, these three groups of people, the chief uh, of, the, of, the, of the, the captain of the temple, the priests, and the Sadducees come up. And it says in verse 2 that they were greatly annoyed. They were greatly annoyed. It didn't just annoy them like maybe little brother annoys you and gets on your nerves. They, uh, they were annoyed to the point that they were disturbed. They were angry. They were strongly uh, irked, if you will. They were provoked. Uh, whenever I lived in northwest Tennessee, I learned a word that I'd never heard before. I've heard the word, but not in the context that I'd heard it before, and that's the word ill, I-L-L. -L. Uh, right after I moved to northwest Tennessee 20-plus years ago, I was at the post office one day, and as I'm walking into the post office, I see a kid from our church sitting in the car, and I waved at them, and they didn't wave back at me. And then I got in the post office, and their mom was in there. I was like, hey, I saw so-and-so out in the car, and I waved at him, and I don't bother waving at him today. He is ill today. And I was like, 
okay, so sick people can't wave? And I'm, I was so confused. A couple weeks passed by, and I've heard the word ill a couple more times. I finally asked somebody, what does somebody mean when they say, I'm ill today? They're like, it means they're ticked off, they're mad, they're in a bad mood, they're irked, they're bothered, they're disturbed. That's the kind of thing that we see happening when these religious leaders show up. They have their arms crossed. They don't want any of this activity that's going on. They are mad. They are offended. They want this stuff to stop. So much so that they said, Peter and John, you're coming with us, and we're going to put you in jail overnight. We're going to have a trial, if you will. We're going to have a hearing tomorrow, but it's too late to have now, so we're going to hold you overnight. And the group that's going to hear them is the Sanhedrin. Have you heard of the Sanhedrin before? The Sanhedrin was basically the Jewish Supreme Court, if you will. It was made up of 71 men, and these Sadducees, I mean, sorry, these Sanhedrins were, for the most part, uh, uh, ruled by or uh, influenced by the Sadducees. So here's the question. Why is it that this group of religious leaders show up so greatly annoyed at what Peter and John have been doing. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, we see the reason they're annoyed is because, number one, they're teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus. They're offended. They're bothered. They're mad. They're annoyed because Peter and John are preaching the name Jesus. The name Jesus is still offensive today. Not because of who he is, but because how people receive that message. We'll keep talking about it in a moment. The second reason that they are offended is specifically what they're preaching about Jesus. Look at the end of verse 2. That they were proclaiming that in Jesus there is resurrection from the dead. So why is this so worrisome? We kind of have the Jewish religious elite standing in front of Peter and John, and they are bothered by the fact that Peter has been preaching the name of Jesus, and that he's preaching that in Jesus there is resurrection from the dead. Well, first of all, they are, they are not convinced. In fact, they are totally against the idea that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. They don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and so they're mad that this message is being preached and proclaimed to others. But beyond that, what the religious leaders are doing is they're trying to protect their status. They're trying to protect what they think is theirs. They're trying to protect their influence. They're trying to protect the power and the control. They think they're in charge, and they don't want anything to interrupt that. They had prestige. They had wealth. They had influence. They had control, and they didn't want to lose any of those things. You may want to look back up at chapter 3. In chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, while Peter was preaching to the people just a few moments before this, it says in 20 and 21 that, that Jesus would bring times of refreshing and that God would bring, in verse 21, a restoration, the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by his, the mouth of the prophets. What Peter had been preaching is that with Jesus, the Messiah, there was a time coming when God would restore things back to how they should be. 
And that because of resurrection of Jesus and resurrection from the dead of those who follow him, that the day was coming when Jesus would restore and make things right. If that happens, then these religious leaders knew that they wouldn't be safe. Like their influence was going to be impacted and they were none too happy about it. So, as the religious leaders did with Jesus... Just a couple of months prior to this, they now lash out at Jesus' followers. Jesus had said it was coming. If we would look at this verse together, John chapter 15, verse 20. We, <clears throat> sorry, we see that Jesus says this would happen to them, and these words by um, kind of a continuation would impact us as well. It says this, remember, Jesus says, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master, if they persecuted me, Jesus says, they will also persecute you. So Jesus has promised them, has declared, has prophesied that just as I'm being persecuted, just as opposition is coming my way, you will face the same sort of opposition. So my question for us as a church family is this. What about you? What about us? If proclaiming the name of Jesus brings opposition, are you and I facing opposition in our lives today because of Jesus? This week while I was studying, I found in a commentary a quote from uh, Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City. And in one of their Bible studies at, New, at his church, they have on the book of Acts, he, he has this commentary, and I want to read it to us. And I, I've intentionally put it on the screen because there's a lot of words here, and I want us to kind of follow along with it. And so it'll be multiple screens. Just know that as we read this, uh, you'll, this, this quote comes from uh, Tim Keller. He says, they were, talking about the early church, were both attractive and growing. The church was growing. The message of, he's not talking about them, he's talking about the message they've been proclaiming is attractive and the church is growing, yet they were also hated and attacked. This description of the early church cuts us two ways. Let's go to the next screen. If on the one hand we experience no attacks or persecution for our faith, it means that we simply are being cowards. We're not taking risks in order, in our witness, we are not being bold. The other part says, on the other hand, if we experience attacks without a fruitfulness and attractiveness, in other words, if we get lots of persecution and no affirmation, it may mean that we are being persecuted for being harsh or insensitive or strident. Jesus said we would only be blessed if we were persecuted for righteousness sake. It's quite possible, and indeed it's very normal for Christians to be persecuted not for their faith, but for their discourtesy insensitivity and lack of warmth and respect in their dealings with others. Insensitive, harsh Christians will have persecution, but not praise. Cowardly Christians will have praise, but not persecution. Most Christians whose walk with God is weak actually get neither, but Christians who are closest to Jesus will get both as he did. Now, let's think for just a moment in this particular quote, what Tim is saying, what Keller is saying is that we should be attractive. In other words, not us, but the message of Jesus. We should be preaching it in such a way that people are responding in understanding who Jesus is. At the very same time, 
As we do that, we should expect that there will be opposition. And so in the early church, here in this chapter, we see that the church experienced both opposition and fruitfulness. The opposition we've read about here in verses 1 through 3. Now to consider the fruitfulness, look at verse 4. It says, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Scholars are kind of uh, up uh, debating this matter, saying, okay, back in chapter 2, it says that there were 3,000 believers that came to faith as a result of Pentecost. So the question now is, does that mean this 5,000 is 5,000 more that came to faith? Or does it mean the number 3,000 is now 5,000? It could maybe go either way because it says that the number was up to or came to about 5,000. I think that the 5,000 actually represents new people that came to faith. Either way, at least 2,000 men came to faith on that day. And it uses the word men, so more than likely, more than 2,000 were saved that day because some women would have been saved as well. And so we see there is fruitfulness in the message that, that Peter is preaching. But we also see that there is great opposition. So my question for you, my question for us as a church family is, what about us? What about us? Do we preach the gospel, share the gospel in such a way that we are experiencing opposition? If we're not experiencing opposition, could it be because we are being cowardly? Could it be that we're not boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus? And could it be that God is calling us to be more bold in telling others about Jesus? All right, so I asked, are we facing opposition? If the answer is yes, if you're facing opposition, let's make sure that it's not because we're being harsh or insensitive. Rather, we should show love while proclaiming Jesus. If we're faithful in preaching the gospel, the result, if you will, of salvation is up to the Holy Spirit. He's the one that does the conviction. But the reality is, at the same time, if we're being faithful in preaching the gospel, we'll see both fruitfulness of our labors as the Holy Spirit works through us, as well as opposition. So this is a pattern we'll see over and over and over again in the book of Acts. It's what the early church experienced. It's what we can anticipate experiencing if we're faithful in preaching the gospel. Let's look at the second note. It says that they responded to this opposition with boldness. And so whenever you and I face opposition in, in proclaiming Jesus, then we should respond by continuing to be bold. We see there in verses 5 and 6 that the very next day that more people show up on the scenes, that, that more are there to hear from Peter and John, and then ultimately that Peter and John are put in their midst, they're set out among them, and now there's at least a significant portion of the Sanhedrin, if not the entire Sanhedrin, all 71 of the Supreme Court justices, if you will, that are hearing this court case on this occasion. We see in verses 5 and 6 that the, the rulers show up. That's this idea of religious leaders or, or senior priests. It says that elders show up. Here at our church we have elders. In this word, elder, it means something different. It's the civic leaders of the society. They show up to be a part of it. It says the scribes show up. These are experts in the law. And then in verse 6, it lists several men's names. It says that they're from the high priestly family. It lists Annas and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. All of these men at various times were or will be high priests. In fact, it says here that um, 
that Annas is the high priest. The reality is Annas had been high priest earlier, and now Caiaphas is, but the reality is that Annas is kind of the, sorry, Annas is kind of the patriarch of the family. And these uh, high priestly family members have held power for several decades. So they're not happy that their position may be at risk. So the first question that we see the Sanhedrin ask the uh, apostles is this in verse 7. By what power or by what name did you do this miracle? It's intended for these leaders to try to reclaim their authority. What they are saying by whose name, by what power, by what authority have you done this? What they're saying is you have no authority here. Peter and John, I don't know where you think you came from, but you have no permission to do what you're doing in this place. They are trying to reclaim what they think is rightfully theirs. And in the face of that, Peter says, no, actually, we do have authority. We do have authority, and it's not been granted to us by man. The authority, the boldness, the, 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 the clarity that we have is all from God himself. Look at verse 8. Before Peter answers the question, it says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. You may be thinking, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Back in chapter 2, didn't we have Pentecost? And didn't the Holy Spirit come on all of the apostles and disciples and followers of Jesus then? The answer is yes. So does verse 8 mean that the Holy Spirit left them and now he's getting the Holy Spirit back? No, not at all. When the Holy Spirit comes upon those who have trusted in Jesus for salvation, he comes to stay. You're like, okay, so is this some kind of second blessing? No, it's not a second blessing. Whenever we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we get all of the Holy Spirit in us in that moment. But rather, what we have here is that, that, that Peter needs to sense the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life, and in a sense, the Holy Spirit gives him more boldness and more clarity to speak up in that occasion, to boldly preach Jesus. All throughout the book of Acts, you will see time and time again where it says that someone was filled with the Holy Spirit. And you will notice that on the hills of them being filled with the Holy Spirit, the purpose for that, that enablement from the Holy Spirit in that moment is that they would step forward and boldly preach Jesus. So you and I, as we look for opportunities to share Jesus with those around us, the Holy Spirit will give us that power to do that. I was talking to somebody before the service, and they were excited about Easter, and they were saying, hey, I'm going to invite somebody that I've met, and I'm going to invite them to church. And, and they were kind of talking about, if I can kind of summon up the courage. And the reality is, we just need the Holy Spirit in our lives, and we need to respond to him when he prompts us. And so whenever he prompts us to invite somebody to come to church on Easter Sunday, whenever he prompts us to tell somebody about the love of Jesus Christ, we step out not in our own power, not in our own strength, but in the name of Jesus as the Holy Spirit enables us. So, Peter, it says in verse 8, the starting point is the Holy Spirit has filled him and he's going to respond with boldness. 
And I'd like you to kind of look through. We're not going to read each phrase, but over the next few verses, line by line, I'm going to hit some of the ways that we see uh, Peter's boldness as he responds. First thing he says, you'll look down in verse 9. It says that they have done a good deed. They brought this healing, not by their own power and their own strength, but because the Holy Spirit gave it to them, and it was a good deed. It was responding to a need. There's no reason for a trial here. And he's basically saying, stop this inquisition. We're good to go. We responded by doing a good deed. And then he says, this miracle has been done how? By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They don't back up. They don't shirk back. They don't say God did this. God did do it, but they spoke specifically the name Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then how do they describe Jesus of Nazareth? He says, this man whom you crucified. You crucified him. Let's think for just a minute. Just about two to three months prior, Jesus stood in front of this same group, and this same group Although they couldn't necessarily sentence him to death, they took him to Pilate so that he would. They essentially sentenced Jesus to death, and now Peter is standing in front of them and saying, you did this. Peter shows tremendous boldness in this moment. Then he says, not only did you crucify him, keep looking along with me, he says that God raised Jesus from the dead. They just said, Peter, we're mad because you're preaching the resurrection of Jesus. So Peter goes, okay, let me remind you, God raised Jesus from the dead. So he keeps preaching the message to these leaders. And then he goes on and says, hey, you rejected Jesus. It talks about Jesus being the cornerstone and the builders have rejected him. And the builders is in reference to leaders. He said, here you are, you're supposed to be leaders of our nation, you're supposed to be leaders of the temple, and you rejected Jesus, the Messiah. Then it says that Jesus is the cornerstone. You may want to jot this down. Sometime today, go back and read Psalm 118. Psalm 118, read the whole psalm. But verse 22 is, is, is what's basically being quoted here in verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He's paraphrasing or quoting or alluding to Psalm 118, verse 22. Psalm 118 is entirely about the temple of God. What Peter is saying is that God is building his new temple. He is building his church. And Jesus is the cornerstone, the head of the church. So he's making bold proclamations about who Jesus is. And he's essentially saying this old temple system is going away. And Jesus is the cornerstone. And then in verse 12, he says there's no other name, there's no other power, there's no other authority that brings salvation. And this salvation is both physical and Ultimately, more importantly, the opportunity for spiritual salvation. Let's look at verse 12. Verse 12, Peter boldly says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. My question for you is, have you trusted in the name of Jesus for salvation? There's no other name. 
There's no other way. There's no other authority. You can't be good enough to experience salvation. You can't go to church enough to experience salvation. You can't complete enough Bible studies to have salvation. You can't have a preacher granddaddy and have salvation. The list could go on and on and on. Peter boldly stands up and says, there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. There's no other way. Why is that? The reason for that is the whole gospel message. The Bible's very clear that sin is anything that we do that's contrary to God's will. And the Bible's clear that 100% of us are sinners. We're made in the image of God, but we are sinners. And that because of our sin, we are eternally, forever, completely separated from a holy, perfect God because he can have nothing to do with sin. But this message that Peter's been preaching, and he's preaching right now to these men, is that Jesus was crucified. He lived a perfect life. He followed the law. He did not have sin. He is the Son of God, God in the flesh, and he lived a perfect life, and he died for our sins. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus died for us. But more important, not more importantly, in addition to that, it's not just a death, but it's a resurrecting kind of powerful death where he died, was buried, was there for three days, and three days later was raised again to life. He's overcome sin. He's overcome death. He's overcome the grave. And Peter says, if you will repent of your sins and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you will trust in his name and his power, his authority, then salvation comes. To your heart and your life my question is have you lived out the truth of verse 12 understanding that salvation is in no one else nothing else there is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved if you trusted in him for salvation so here's peter he's being confronted by this group of religious leaders and he steps up to the plate and he hits a home run as he boldly preaches the gospel. They kind of pull aside and they go, hey guys, they're talking to each other. They're like, this message that Peter and John are sharing, like, I don't, we don't know how to stop them. But we got to stop them. We don't want this message getting out. So what do they do? They call Peter and John back in. They go, hey guys, y'all stop talking about Jesus. Don't do it anymore. They send them out. But before they send them out, look at verses 19 and 20. Peter and John say, hey, you've told us to stop preaching, but you're going to have to judge. Is it right for us to do what you say, or is it right for us to do what God says? And don't worry about answering the question, because we're going to do what God says. Like, we're going to preach Jesus regardless of what you say, because verse 20 says, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I found in a commentary this week this quote. Here's what it says, essentially paraphrasing this verse. They looked at the guys and said, hey, you're the judges around here, right? Well, very well. Give me your legal judgment on this one. If we're standing here in God's presence, should we obey God or should we obey you? The answer is we're going to obey God. In verse 20, if you were looking at the Greek, you would see that there were actually 
there's a double negative. There, there's two words in, in the Greek, u and me, and those two words both mean no or, or negative. And so when they say we cannot but do this, they're saying we can't not preach. And in English, we think a double negative makes a positive, right? In the Greek, it just makes it more emphatic, more definite, more forceful. They say, with great boldness, we will continue to preach the gospel. Let's think for just a minute about Peter's boldness in this moment. Just two or three months earlier, when Jesus stood before this same Sanhedrin, what was Peter doing? He was cowering. He was denying Jesus even before the servant girl. You remember that? Three times the night of Jesus' arrest and trial, Peter denied Jesus. And now he stands in front of these same men that could do the same thing to him, and he boldly proclaims the name of Jesus. Anytime we share the name of Jesus... Whether we're on trial or not, it takes boldness. You ever been at a family reunion talking to your uncle, and your uncle you love to death, you have no problems with him, but you can't just summon up the courage to start talking about Jesus, and so you just talk about sports the whole time because you just don't know how to start the conversation, and your uncle's not going to tear you down for bringing it up, but it's nerve-wracking for some of us, right? You can give me a head nod if you can relate. You're at the grocery store and you want to invite somebody to come to church with you, but you're like, I don't even know how to ask them. Just ask them to go to church with you. It takes boldness to preach the gospel in any circumstance, whether we're facing opposition or if we're not. Let me give us all a word of caution here, though. When I say we should be bold in the face of opposition, do not hear me say that that means to be bold is to go out and try to win an argument. To be bold with the gospel does not mean to try to prove I'm right. To be bold with the gospel definitely does not mean to have a brash self-confidence. Rather, to be bold with the gospel is to simply preach the truth of the gospel, whether I persuade the person or not. I'm not trying to win an argument, because if I'm just trying to win an argument, am I truly sharing the gospel, or am I just trying to win a fight? Have you been on social media lately? There's a whole lot of arguing, right? And all too often, myself included, if we're not careful, we're just trying to win an argument. And by golly, I'm going to prove to you the Cowboys are a much better team than your team, and I'll argue to the grave. It's not how we should be, right? So to say boldness in the face of opposition when preaching Jesus is not about trying to prove I'm right. It's trying to point to the truth of who Jesus is. There's a big difference. Here's the reasons we should be bold. Maybe you want to jot these fourth down. I have four reasons why we should be bold. Not to try to win an argument, not to try to be, self, uh, to be brash, but here are four reasons. Number one, because the resurrection is true. Preach the gospel boldly because the resurrection is true. God has raised Jesus from the dead, so let's go out and preach it. A second reason to be bold, out of a love for others. If I'm trying to win an argument, my love for them is not being evident, is it? 
But if I know that the resurrection is true, then out of love as I preach to them or share with them, it's a desire for them to know Jesus and for their sins to be forgiven, not for me to win a debate. Number three, the reason we should be bold is because the gospel is exclusive. Let me explain that. Verse 12 says there's no other name under heaven by which, was, which, which, uh, by which we must be saved. The gospel is exclusive. All too often, you and I, if we're not careful, end up being functional universalists. Let me explain what I mean by that. A universalist believes that anybody gets to that higher power, that higher being. All roads lead to heaven, if you will. We do not come close to believing that to be true. But if you and I never step up and boldly proclaim the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it's as if we are functioning as, hey, it's cool, it's all good. You, if that works for you, you, you make that happen. No, we cannot be, we cannot be functional universalists. We've got to boldly preach the gospel. And then number four, most importantly, preach the gospel with boldness for God's glory. It's for his sake as people from every nation, tribe, and language begin to worship him and trust him. That's where our boldness should be. So what about you? What about me as a church family? Are we filled by the Holy Spirit, and are we boldly preaching Jesus to those around us? So we see in the first point, proclamation of Jesus brings opposition. We see in the second one that we should respond to this opposition with boldness. And then number three, we'll look at this briefly. It says that facing opposition requires time spent with Jesus. If you go back and read the account of the conversation of, of, the, of the Sanhedrin or the council, we see several things. First of all, in verse 16, we see they don't deny the miracle. They know this miracle has taken place. They don't deny it. In verse 13, at the beginning of verse 13, they see and they notice and they speak to the fact that, she, uh, uh, sorry, that, that Peter and John are being bold. And then keep reading verse 13. In verse 13, it says that they also acknowledge and see that Peter and John are uneducated and they're common men. All too often we read that and we think they're illiterate. No, they weren't illiterate. Rather, what it means is they were lay people. They weren't priests. They weren't rabbis. They had not been to official rabbi school, but they were laymen instead. And so the reality is that all of us, whether we're the pastor, whether we're the equipping pastor, whether we're the worship pastor, children pastor, the deacons, the elders, or a lay person, all of us, 100% of us are to go out and preach the gospel. They didn't have religious theological training and so they could still preach the gospel so hear me say this whether you have theological training or whether you don't have theological training or if you feel like you're somewhere in the middle with all of us the only way we can be bold about preaching the gospel is by the spirits leading us in that regard so whether you're trained or whether you're not trained preach the gospel and trust the spirit to do the work in you let's keep looking though i like the ending of verse 13 it says, and these religious leaders could not deny, they recognized, they were aware of that they had been with Jesus. Do you think the light bulb just came on for those guys? Oh, 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 Peter and John, they were disciples of Jesus. No, that's not what that verse means. They already knew who they were dealing with. Rather, what it says is they saw, they perceived, they acknowledged that the fact that these men had been with Jesus, something was different about them. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, he's a member at Living Hope. No, it was he has been with Jesus. 
It was not just an identifier of what gang they were a part of. It was something that we don't agree with, but something is different about these guys, and clearly it's because they've been with this Jesus dude. They've been with Jesus. It's as if the religious leaders at that point knew that the authority, the ability, and the power that Peter and John had came from Jesus. You see, these men had walked with Jesus. These men had talked with Jesus. They had been with him for three years and sat under his teaching and his preaching. They'd seen him do ministry. They did ministry alongside of Jesus. They had been taught how to pray by Jesus. They had been taught how to read God's word by Jesus. Can you imagine that? They had been taught about the kingdom of God by Jesus. Their lives had been radically changed and transformed as they followed Jesus. Is that said about you and about me? Maybe I didn't say the question clear enough. Could people say the same thing about me? Could people say the same thing about you? He, she, they have been with Jesus. You're like, well, well hold up. This is like 2,000 years later. I can't walk with Jesus and, and sit by the fireside with him while, while he's preaching and teaching. No, no, I get that. But we today should be with Jesus on a daily basis, right? How can we walk with Jesus? How can we see what Jesus teaches? How can we learn from Jesus? How can we learn how to pray from Jesus? How can we learn to read scripture from Jesus? We can do that by spending time in his word on a daily basis, studying it and devouring it and applying it to our lives. We can be with Jesus by spending time in prayer with him, not just to sit down and say, let me run through my laundry list real quick, Jesus, and as soon as I get through with my, with my list, I'll say amen, I'll step up and forget I even prayed. No, spending time with Jesus involves his word. Spending time with Jesus involves praying with him. Spending time with Jesus involves spending time with his people. They had been with Jesus, and they had been with others who had been with Jesus, and they had been in community together. They knew what it meant not to live the perfect life, but they knew what it meant to follow Jesus. They had been with Jesus, and their opponents saw it and acknowledged it out loud. All too often, the people in our lives, our wives, our husbands, our parents, our kids, our friends, our coworkers, our ministry partners at church, they can't always say that about us. Instead, they can say, oh my goodness, somebody's not been spending time with Jesus. I'm not trying to guilt trip us. I'm just trying to say that here Peter steps up and boldly proclaims the name of Jesus and we see 5,000 people come to faith, not because of what Peter has done, but simply because he has been empowered by the Holy Spirit and he's trusting him and he's opening his mouth and preaching the good news of Jesus. He's not dependent upon some kind of rabbinic training. He's not dependent on some kind of uh, skill set that he's developed. Rather, God uses his development and his skill set in such a way whenever he's a willing servant. And for us to be a willing servant involves us spending time with Jesus. So I'm going to ask you this question. Are you spending time with Jesus? Is studying God's word a priority in your life if it's not starting today 
begin to make it a priority. If you don't know where to start, reach out to any of us. Reach out to the staff. Reach out to an elder. Reach out to a deacon. Reach out to your hope group leader. Reach out to the person you serve in ministry with. Reach out to somebody that's in your hope group. It's not that any of us have it all together, but we should do this together to encourage one another. Prioritize the study of God's Word. How much of a priority is your prayer life? Prioritize that. How much of a priority is spending time with God's people? Prioritize that. Make Sunday morning a, 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 a decision that you've made all the time. Like, come Sunday morning, I'll be with God's people at his house. Come Tuesday night or Wednesday night or Monday night, whenever your hope group meets, I'll be there. Like, doing life together is vital. Spend some time this week reading the devotional. It's going to hit on that very topic. Another question I have is, is our church, is living hope and its people known as those who have been with Jesus? And I'm asking all of us, commit afresh, commit anew this week, this morning, to spending time with Jesus this week, and let's see what Jesus does. So how do we condense all of this? I've been talking for a while, maybe longer than you wanted me to talk, but let me kind of condense it for us in this moment. Here's some practical takeaways from this passage. Number one, don't have a closet or private faith. Don't have a closet or private faith, but boldly proclaim the hope of Jesus. Number two, don't be surprised when opposition comes your way. And then number three, don't neglect time with Jesus or you won't be able to preach him, teach him, tell others about Jesus. Proclaim the hope that's found in him. Oh, oh, we can do that, but the power won't be there. Like, the authority that we need is found in our time with him so that the Holy Spirit can empower us and embolden us and allow us to preach the good news of Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing together. If, we're able, if you're able to stand, that'd be great. And as we begin to sing, some plates are going to be passed, and if you've come prepared to give an offering today, then you can drop that in there. If you're a guest, please don't feel the need to put anything there unless you have filled out your connection card. We'd love to be able to kind of get to know you and connect with you. Also on the connection card, any of us, we can put down prayer requests, we can put down spiritual decisions. And so you can respond in lots of ways, any or all of the ways. You can give financially, you can drop in a connection card, you can come and pray here at the altar, you can come and pray with me. But let's allow God to do business with us. For some of you, you may need to trust in Jesus this morning for the first time, understanding that he is the only one who brings salvation. For others of us, it's a commitment to, to spend time with Jesus. And for others, it could be, hey, I'm going to ask Jesus, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to embolden me to faithfully, continually, consistently preach the name of Jesus. Let me lead us in prayer.